Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. Spring is upon us in this podcast, so too the long-awaited invasion of the Cape Colony by General Jan Smuts and his commando. It has taken him almost a month of zigzagging across the Free State from his base in the eastern Transvaal to arrive at the border. Other Boer leaders have been busy in the Cape, but they were operating in smaller units and were regarded as less significant, at least from the point of view of the British occupying the territory. Smuts's arrival was a completely different kettle of fish. He was the very symbol of resistance, but also a symbol of all the contradictions that many Boers encapsulated, as I'll explain. While he remains literally a giant in the pantheon of South African heroes, he was not an easy man to travel with, as Denise Rates would find out. Remember, last week, Rates had ridden to within sight of the Orange River and its junction with the Caledon in the southern Free State. That's where Jan Smuts's commando then rode into view, and our youthful narrator was seeking to invade the Cape himself with his newfound friends, nine extremely young and radicalized teens called the Rake Section, the Rich Section, who wanted to fight the British inside their own territory. But first, a quick look at Smuts and why he was such an enigma in South African early politics. He deserves an entire podcast series himself. His life was so rich, from his incredibly brave acts as a youthful Boer leader, all the way through to his involvement in the formation of the Royal Air Force during the First World War, his leadership during the Second World War, his diplomatic skills and crucial role in the formation of the First League of Nations, and then the United Nations, and of course, as South Africa's Prime Minister decades after the Boer War. He was born in 24th of May, 1870, to prosperous Afrikaner parents who lived in the Cape Colony town of Malmesbury. Despite their prosperity, as the second son rural custom dictated that he would stay on the family farm because a full formal education was the domain of the first son. Still, his mother Katarina taught him the basics, much of it in English, which is surely ironic considering he was to fight the British in a few years. However, his elder brother died when Jan was 12 and he was sent to school in his brother's place, attending Ribiak West. Immediately it was clear he was an excellent student and despite starting school far later than his peers, he'd caught up to his classmates within four years. At 16, he was sent to Victoria College in Stellenbosch where he learned High Dutch, German and Ancient Greek. His traditional upbringing meant he was ostracized by his peers, but it must be said that he was imperious and very difficult to talk to. He received first-class honors in literature and science, and also met his future wife, Ilse Krucher. Smuts won a scholarship for overseas study and traveled to Cambridge University to read law at Christ's College. So far, almost the epitome of an Englishman, but, like many Africans, whether past or present, he found living in England difficult. He had no money and he was constantly homesick. His scholarship failed to cover all expenses. He eventually secured a loan from a college professor, J.I. Marais. Strangely, he studied American poet Walt Whitman and then wrote a book which remained unpublished until 1973 called Walt Whitman, A Study in the Evolution of Personality. One of his tutors, Professor Maitland, called him the most brilliant student he had ever met. Such was his incredible mind that he invented a wide-ranging philosophy called holism, which incorporated bits of Spinoza and maintained essentially that things are greater than the sum of their parts. That's, of course, a massive simplification, but if you want to read more about this, read Smuts's book Holism and Evolution, published in 1927. What is truly extraordinary is while he was grappling with these profound ideas and money matters, he managed to graduate in 1894 with a double first. 
Lord Todd, the master of Christ's College, said in 1970 that in 500 years of the college's history, of all its members past and present, three had been truly outstanding. John Milton, the poet, Charles Darwin, the evolutionist, and Jan Smuts. In December 1894, Cambridge offered him a fellowship in law, but he turned his back on a distinguished legal career in England in order to return home to South Africa. He had few friends when he arrived back in Cape Town, and his abrasive nature was hard to swallow. Because there was little financial success in law, he then diverted his attention to politics and journalism, writing for the Cape Times newspaper. Smuts became obsessed with the prospect of a united South Africa, and ironically supported Cecil John Rhodes, at least initially. So much so that this future arch-enemy of the British joined De Beers Mining Company, that very symbol of British mining and empire building in Africa. But the Jameson Raid, sponsored by Rhodes in 1895-96, changed his view. Smuts was outraged and felt betrayed by both the English and by Rhodes personally. He immediately left for the Transvaal Republic, where he became state attorney working in Pretoria. And so it was that Smuts joined the war like other Boer leaders in 1899. In the early phase of the war, Smuts was President Paul Kruger's eyes and ears in Pretoria and handled logistics, communication with diplomats and propaganda. By mid-1900, as we've heard from our series, he had joined the commando of Cours de la Rey and began to excel in hit-and-run warfare. Guerrilla fighting was in his blood, it seems. Thus, by September 1901, where our story has led, General Jan Smuts and around 400 men were sitting on their horses, staring out into the Cape Colony, a long way from Christ's College and Cambridge. And it was here that our intrepid narrator, Denise Reitz, met and joined his commander. Reitz would ride with Smuts throughout the remainder of the war until its end in May 1902. It was the finest commando with which I have ever served, Reitz said. The rank and file were mostly keen young farmers from the western Transvaal, the pick of Delaray's fighting men, and in command of them was perhaps the one man in South Africa who could have led us through the perilous days to come. General Smuts halted his men and ordered them to off-saddle, which gave Raitz time to talk to members of this group. Amazingly, he began bumping into former comrades who'd fought in the battles in Natal more than 18 months before, including a relative. I came on my Hollander uncle Jan Mulder, whom I had not seen since that time in Natal. I also found the general's brother-in-law, Kricha, one of the few survivors of Isaac Malherbe's corporalship, which had been so badly mauled at Spionkop. They spoke of the hardships and dangers that this commander had experienced. The British were aware that Smuts was moving towards the Cape and had done everything in their power to trap him through his perilous free state ride to the south. Many men and horses were lost on the way, but now they were on the cusp of their long-planned invasion. From what I could gather, said Reitz, General Smuts proposed a flying raid into the central districts of the Cape to test a large-scale invasion later. It must be stressed here that the main reason was not just to test an invasion, but to bloody the British and therefore convince their Cape Afrikaner brethren to rise up in revolt. But Smuts was far too clever just to announce this to all in sundry. Whether this was really his object, I do not know, for he was an uncommunicative man, but at any rate, here he was. Reitz met Smuts and offered to join the commander, along with his rake section, the rich section, the dandy fifth, as the ten had renamed themselves. The general looked at Reitz and said, yes. 
They were to become Smuts's scouts, a true distinction, which we accepted gladly, said Rates, but for which we paid dearly in the long run. With that ominous note, I must also quote the Times History of the Boer War, page 302. It says, The adventure of this handful of resolute men, led by General Smuts, forms one of the most interesting episodes in the whole course of the guerrilla war. After eating and resting for a while near the village of Sastron, Smuts decided to ride closer to the Orange and Cross that night. By noon a start was made and towards five in the evening we could see a dark line in front of us marking the gorge, at the bottom of which runs the river between high mountain walls. Unfortunately, that was not all that they saw, for stationed on their side of the river was a large cordon of British troops. They were there to bar their way. Rates was disgusted. Whenever a footpath led down the cliffs, there stood a tented camp, and the intervening ground was patrolled by strong bodies of mounted men who clearly knew of our coming. Smuts turned around and retreated back to the range of hills to the north, and then sent scouts out to search for a possible crossing point. At dusk, a young officer named Louis Vessels arrived with 50 men, adding more soldiers to Smuts's commando. A hard-bitten crew, Rates said, with whom... He had been operating for over a year. Vessels, though, had unnerving news. He was riding away from enemy columns that were closing in rapidly from all directions, and the Boers were going to be trapped against the British cordon along the river unless they crossed that night. Vessels was also travelling with local Basutu herders, who knew of a path that the British had left open. The problem was they'd left it open because it appeared to be impossible to use, owing to its steepness against the perpendicular cliffs of the gorge. Smuts ordered the men into the saddle, and they set off immediately for this perilous path. At three the next morning, they caught sight of the white rapids where the Orange River boiled and eddied into a narrow channel through the cliffs and could hear the roar of South Africa's biggest river. They began descending. After toiling down the precipitous path to which our guide had brought us, and long which assuredly no other mountain troops had ever passed, we reached the edge of the water. The commando began crossing in single file, but the river was flowing strongly. It was a mountain torrent, yet they forged on. As dawn lit the cliffs above, writes Rates, the hindmost man was through, and I stood in the Cape Colony at last. However, their crossing was not over until they managed to climb out the other side. After a short halt to water horses and prepare, they took a path which led to the top of the cliffs opposite through a deep cleft. They were leading their horses along this dangerous route, but by some miracle they all made it up. We emerged on a wide grass-covered tableland, pleasantly dotted with native villages and herds of cattle at pasture. An idyllic start to their Cape adventure, scenic almost. And as we know from this series, scenic landscape normally means a heightened chance of skirmishes and battles Thus the saying, beautiful scenery, passed their ammunition. The commander scattered into smaller parties, riding from one village to another, looking for tobacco and fodder for horses. The Basutu people are highly skilled horsemen, and many Boers were riding the smaller Basutu horses called Lesotho ponies. These Basutu were also highly experienced in warfare and dangerous adversaries, and did not take too kindly to the Boers' sudden arrival in their midst. But the Boers did not know is that the Basutu were also being paid by the British. While we were thus ranging, a body of mounted Basutus, around 300 strong, came moving swiftly towards us. 
Some were armed with rifles, others carried battle axes, assegais and nobkiris, which they brandished in the air as they approached. Smuts ordered the commander to close in together, and the Basutus halted. Both large groups stared at each other, the Basutu on a small rise or knoll in the ground, and the Boers trotting past in silence. As Danae Straits was to find out, however, the large group of Basutu men were planning an event, and he was going to be the main attraction. He had lagged behind with his uncle Jan Mulder and five others who decided to feed the horses from a village grain basket. Of course, the Basutus were not happy about this. Nothing happened at first. It also wasn't the first time Reitz got himself in trouble in an African village. Remember, some months before he'd been involved in a raid to the west of Johannesburg at night, which went badly wrong when one of the Boers grabbed a chief by the throat. That ended with the Boers retreating and almost paying for the insult with their lives. So here was Reitz, a mile behind the commando. The five trailed and watched as the commando vanished over the edge of the tableland and onto a road leading to the plain below. By the time they could look down, the bulk of the commando was already at the bottom. They were riding along a road which was flanked on the left by a ridge of overhanging natural rock. To their right was a mission church with a long stone fence separating the road from the fields and gardens. An idyllic scene, well, not quite. For a force of that sort was now in a position to be ambushed by someone, and that someone was the Basutus. We were alarmed to see that the Basutus had left their horses above and were scrambling down to the final shelf of the rock overhanging the road, crawling forward to the edge to look straight down on our men riding unconsciously below. The Basutus seemed to be nudging each other, but none fired. By the time they'd made up their minds, opportunity was gone, for the commander was already debouching from the confined space of the road into the open plan. My fellow stragglers and I, though, were worse off. The Basutu's intention was clearly hostile now, and Reitz, his uncle Jan, and the five companions were isolated and had to make it through the same gap. The solitary seven scrambled down the pathway onto the road and rushed along past the stone wall. As we passed the church beside the road, we caught sight of many dark faces peering at us from within. Then came a deafening crash as a volley was fired at us from point blank from the building. Showers of splintered glass fell on their heads. They were that close to the church, but not one of the seven was hit by a bullet. How they were missed was a mystery, because the Basutus really meant this group some harm. Then the Basutus on the ridge overlooking the road opened fire as well, and Rates and the five galloped away. But for some reason, Rates' uncle Jan dismounted and tried to find shelter behind a nearby rock, and the youngster felt obliged to join him there. This was initially not a clever move. They had no support, and about 300 Basutus had surrounded them. They had immediate cover, but as Raid said, we saw our position was untenable. The two men opened fire on the church, while the Basutus on the ridge began to get the range of the five men who were still galloping away, trying to reach the plain beyond. With some of the enemy standing on the roof and others shooting from the church not 15 yards off, we realized that to remain here could have only one ending. It was going to be touch and go. As they looked down the road, they could see only two Boers riding for their lives across the fields, for they had leapt over the stone wall. Two dead horses were lying on the road, and a third was galloping riderless in the distance. Was it curtains for Rates and his uncle? How could they survive this moment? Instantly, both leapt back on their horses and galloped out from behind the rock. The men in the church aimed and fired but missed once more, and suddenly a group of Basutus jumped out from behind the stone wall right in front of them. 
Fortunately, these last were armed only with assegais and nobkiris, which came whirring past our ears. In this pandemonium, we took every moment to be our last. Sixty yards away was a deep spring, and they drove their horses down into this depression. More danger. There were around twenty basutus squatting in a circle around what looked like a boer's body. And then they jumped up and fired at Rates and his uncle. The two galloped along the bed of the spring, the bullets hissing and fizzing close by until they were out of range. Of the five men who had been with us, the two whom we had seen making across the country got clean away, but the other three were killed on the road. Later the commander returned to find the bodies only to discover all had been mutilated by traditional Sangomas who used body parts for medicine. I have little doubt that when my uncle and I rode down amongst them, they were busy at their grisly task of dissection, writes Rates in shock. General Smuts had halted the commander upon hearing the shooting. Rates's brown mare was seriously hurt, hit by an assegai in the jaw, while his uncle's horse had been shot through the hind leg. I put my poor animal out of her misery at once, but my uncle thought that his might recover, which it did. The matters between the Boers and Basuta were not over, however. While they stood recovering, the Boers saw another party of twelve men in difficulties. These had also become separated from the main body while foraging on the tableland, and distant firing could be heard. They were in grave danger, for between them and ourselves ran a deep ravine towards which they were being shepherded. On Smuts's order, the commander wheeled around and headed to help, driving off the attacking Basutus. Three Boers had been killed and seven wounded in this exchange, and they had also used up vital ammunition. Rates had only four rounds left. His comrades were in no better shape. All had virtually emptied their bandoliers, fighting the British through the Free State and then the Basutu. It was a rather inauspicious start to the much-vaunted invasion of the Cape Colony. The Basutu's attack also underlined the British strategy of arming black soldiers as irregulars, both in modern-day Lesotho and Eswatini, or Swaziland, as well as Natal. Smuts would rail against how the British were supposed to be fighting white on white and leaving blacks out of their struggle. This, of course, was naive. Black South Africans naturally gravitated to the British with their promise, false as it turned out, of some sort of universal suffrage, albeit with the idea of a separate parliament. So, what was in store for General Smuts and his commando? We'll find out more next week. So until then, please rate the podcast on iTunes and post a review if you have the time, or send me a message through our website at abwarpodcast.com or a direct message on Twitter at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Oh, bring